Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I am so excited to share with you my conversation with Christy Drotman, who is a digital strategist and the host of Brown Girl Green, a podcast and media series dedicated to critical conversations around building an environmentally just society. This was such a fun conversation as we talked about her philosophy of change and some of the vulnerable experiences that led her to choosing a career path in the environment. After graduating from a self-made degree that combined environmental studies and global poverty from UC Berkeley, Christy is now an independent consultant helping environmental-related organizations develop communication tactics that are relevant and reflective of our changing times. We also talk about her identity as a Jewish Filipina and how that has shaped her global and environmental perspectives and how she creates an inclusive platform through Brown Girl Green. Her energy and insight and honesty is absolutely refreshing and I hope you sense it too when you listen to her story. Enjoy! So we'll get started off with learning more about how your experiences growing up shaped your perceptions about the natural environment and what made you decide to pursue the environmental sciences as a profession. I decided to study like about the environment because like it was towards the end of high school and I took AP environmental science and I learned about just like Yeah, the injustices facing communities across the United States in particular who don't have access to like clean water, food. And I started becoming really interested in like what that meant and how I could help people by caring about the environment. So that's why I decided to pursue a major in society in the environment at UC Berkeley. And I also studied urban studies, which is like city planning. Mm-hmm. And then I minored in global poverty and practice. I studied a lot of stuff. Wow. Because I was just really interested in how all those things intersected, like climate change, city planning, and global poverty. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what my education shaped up to be. I got exposed to a lot of different facets right. of how to address the climate crisis. But like, from different perspectives within the field, because like people who work on global poverty look a lot different than people working on forest conservation. Right. But I got a taste of all different perspectives of people really trying to do good in the world, but had completely different methodologies in doing so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Your story kind of resonates with me because when I decided that I wanted to do something in the environment, I wasn't quite sure, you know, if it was going to be the sciences or policy. And so for me, a liberal arts education was really helpful to kind of like understand what are the different intersections, like you said, of environmental Mm -hmm. sustainability. And I think I've just really enjoyed sort of being in the middle of it all, where I understand a little bit of everything and how it is all connected. And so you mentioned earlier that what really kind of touched you is observing the inequalities and the injustices as far as access to a clean, healthy environment goes. Were there any Mm -hmm. specific examples that really caught your attention to this? Yeah, I would say that like a really big thing that came up for me was like my connection to like my Filipino identity. So like understanding like how the climate crisis is impacting people in the Philippines. 
including my own family. And obviously the Philippines is considered by like the Western world, a third world country. But like, I think that that's a really like false portrayal of like how resource rich the Philippines is. Cause Philippines has some of the greatest concentration of biodiversity on like planet earth and has some of like the richest, like indigenous knowledge around how to take care of natural resources in the world. And it was just one of those things where I was like, I don't just buy that this is like this poor, destitute, dangerous country that, and that kept being fed to me by both like my family and just like the media. Mm. And so I started exploring that more because then there was news about Typhoon Haiyan, the, the big typhoon that hit when I was in college. Right. And there's talks about like that climate change was impacting the creation of typhoons, impacting communities in the Philippines. And that fall, when all that stuff was happening, Yeb Sano, who's like one of my biggest inspirations, is a really big climate leader in the Philippines, went on a hunger strike before the UN climate talks. Mm. And it got a lot of press. And there was a lot of discussion about like, yeah, what does this mean for the climate movement? And then that's when I started like figuring out there's like connections between these false narratives about like the Philippines being resource rich and being colonized and climate change and the destruction of vulnerable frontline communities. And I was like, it's all piecing together. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started. I mean, it took me a while to get there, but that was definitely like my gateway to start understanding the intersections between those things. Yeah. And I bet also, you know, living in the US, the Philippine-American war, that history definitely plays into kind of the perceptions or the misperceptions, misconceptions that Americans have about the Philippines. Definitely. So we're trying to fight just decades of of misconceptions here. So that, that's really interesting. And so when you decided that you wanted to pursue a profession in the environmental space, did you face any kind of pushback from your family or any loved ones? Yeah, I would say that like there was definitely, I was lucky enough. I grew up in a family that was very open-minded about like what I wanted to do with my life. I was never in like a family where it was like, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. Like a lot of my like Asian friends had to deal with. Mm -hmm. It was more (laughs) like my parents wanted me to just be happy and like do what made me happy. Yeah. But there's still like worries. There's still like tension around like, well, how are you going to make a career out of this? Like, are there actual jobs? Right. Caring about the environment. Can you actually like make a living off of this? And even I questioned now, I was like, uh, I think so, but <laughs> everyone's telling me you just have to work with trees. And I was like, oh, I don't want to work with trees. So am I screwed? I don't know. <laughs> and I think that there is a lot of like this whole, like my family was supportive, but like didn't really understand what I was doing. I mean, my family still doesn't really get what I do, but they're like very supportive. Yeah. Like, so it's great, but it's also like, yeah, there's no real activist in my family. This is all kind of self-chosen, <laughs> yeah. a self-chosen path, as you will. Like, I didn't grow up in a family of like people who are like, yeah, let's care about the environment or like, let's be care about shifting politics or anything like that. That was just like my own path that I explored on my own. Yeah. And I think because of that, like my family doesn't really get it, but I mean, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you for actually persisting through because I, I've been in a very similar situation growing up in a South Asian family. 
my parents were fairly progressive, but the whole environmental studies as a career was not something that was popular when I decided to pursue it. And it was just a lot of me having to educate my family about what that meant and what jobs in that sector could look like. And mm-hmm. my dad asked me that same question. He's like, how are you going to feed your family? And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I'll figure it out. And I figured it out and I'm still figuring it out. But I'm also glad that they did provide me with that support where they didn't force me to take the career path that wasn't really my passion. They allowed me to explore it within reason. And luckily I've reached to this point, but it's never a given, right? That you will have a guaranteed career in the environmental space. And I feel like we have to keep (laughs) adapting to the times. I think this is one of those professions where we have to do that. But that said, I'm glad that my parents made me ask those questions because those type of questions are what have driven me to really make a profession out of it. And I feel like that's what I'm hearing from you as well. Oh, yeah. And I feel like if you don't ask those questions, that's where you get exploited because people are like, well, this is just how the industry has been and this Mm. is how it works. And it's like, no, this is an evolving field because clearly there's stuff that's not working. Right. And clearly you all need to learn to adapt to a new base of people that care about this stuff, but you mm-hmm. don't have the capacity or infrastructure to support them to succeed. Right. And I think that there's, there's a lot of misconception about that. And, I, and I'm glad that the field and the industry as a whole is like evolving, but it, it definitely needs a lot more work. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, when I was looking at different career paths, it was either you could be a forester or a park ranger, which I would have loved, (laughs) or more specific. But like you said, we have to evolve with the times and you're doing that as well currently in your Mm. professional progression in digital marketing. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I would say like my whole job and career after college was, I don't want to say self-made, but like it was kind of like... I just kind of figured it out Mm. (laughs) and there was no roadmap and there continues to not be a roadmap. Like I'm only two years out of college, but like, I feel like I've been building this career since I was probably a sophomore or junior. Wow. Cause I was already doing like paid organizing, like digital organizing and marketing work towards the end of college. Like I was already like in it. Because I like knew that there was a need for it, but there was barely any of those jobs or like opportunities back then. And that was like, what, 2015? Mm -hmm. And obviously a lot of that has shifted now because people are seeing the need for digital marketing, but in like the nonprofit activist space. But that just wasn't a thing back in like 2015 when I was like first exploring a lot of this stuff. But I knew that like, I wasn't just wanting to be a journalist or like a policy wonk. I wanted to like be at the intersection between making policy and environmental journalism interesting and palatable and just like more culturally relevant. Like I felt like I just kept seeing all these white authors, white environmentalists who were like in the New York Times, in the Guardian. And I just was like, that's cool. But like, this isn't, there's no nuance here. Like this doesn't relate to my experience. And so that was like the beginnings of me being like, there needs to be better like storytelling in the climate movement because clearly we're missing out on like big swaths of the population to like actually do anything about this. And, and I think a big part of that was like my family and like the people I was surrounded by from where I grew up were just like, yeah, caring about the planet matters, but you're not really like giving us any good selling points. 
on like where we could even get started. And that's when I was like, oh, yeah, I need to start exploring that. So I started like interning for different environmental nonprofits and people who were doing like looking for people to do communications and marketing. And then just like one thing just like snowballed after another where I was like, I want to be a communications like expert and like professional in the environmental space. And that's pretty much been my career exploration the past two years. I've been doing digital strategy and consulting for different environmental nonprofits and now working for a renewable energy company that specializes in solar. And then on top of that, just like building Brown Girl Green and really like building a media platform that's focused on delivering that kind of content that I wish I could see on my newsfeed to the average person to take action on the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we definitely want to talk about Brown Girl Green because that's really how we got connected first several months ago. Yes. I love that you're using communications as a way to basically package information that is relevant to various yeah. perspectives and also cultures. And yeah. it's something that environmental organizations are increasingly seeing a need for. So that puts you in this sweet spot. Yeah. And something that I've always been curious about as an environmentalist is we started off like back in the day, just kind of guilting people into making oh. environmentally friendly choices. And we didn't really have that many communication tools besides like the newspapers, radio, mm-hmm. word of mouth, or if you were an environmental activist taking to the streets and that's how you got attention. These days mm-hmm. you can reach a mass of people with not that much money, but you also have to be very strategic about it. So what's your philosophy of how you approach using communication techniques to get people to care about environmental issues? Mm. I would say like the biggest thing is using it as a tool for relationship building. At the end of the day, like the movements that we build have to be done offline. Mm. It can be done online, but like you have to have those offline relationships that aren't just like, I'm going to tag this fool on my post. And yeah, we're like totally down for the same things, but we're never going to actually like have a FaceTime chat. We're never going to like actually get to know each other. I think for me, if I've learned anything in this journey so far to this point is that I've used these platforms to like build relationships, to like find those people that I could never find in my classes, to find those people I could never find in the environmental movement. Like I now have found a community of environmentalists of color that are people of color that are like passionate about changing the story. And it's like, we don't live in the same geographic space, but we're like constantly talking and sharing ideas with each other to build momentum in the ways that like feel good to us. And so I would say that like, you should think about like, one, how are you building community and relationships with the people in your online network, in your niche? And then two, what value are you providing to people that like, is actually going to make them feel like they're connected to you and your story and not just, oh, like I'm Christy, like I'm just this separate entity. It's like, no, like how are we actually like building a community together online? I think is really important. I think sometimes people just put out a lot of content, which is great. Like we need those people that are just like, I'm just a news outlet or I'm just a resource. Like I'm not trying to put any like face to the name. But I think for me, putting the face to the name has been really core because it's been core to like my own healing journey of like getting past a lot of the stress and like, I don't know, the pain that I felt being in the environmental space during college and the tips and the stories that I share on my platform 
I share my vulnerability with the hopes that it'll like make someone else feel like they're not going bananas that like they are logical like these feelings of isolation these feelings of like I don't know what I'm doing this feels really hard I'm ashamed that I can't get it right like those are all things that I go through and I'm by sharing those things with my audience I like hope that it can make them breathe easier and just know that they're not alone wow yeah, I definitely get that from following you on Instagram. And I, I'm so glad that you are offering yourself as a resource because for me, even though I've been in the environmental space for 10 plus years, I've worked in isolation. And it's only now, I mean, as an environmentalist, when I was kind of growing up in that space, I didn't know how to connect with other environmentalists of color or other like-minded environmentalists. So that's what I mean by working in isolation. And the pain that you're talking about, I have experienced that. And now that I've kind of put myself into the social media space through the Breaking Green Ceilings Instagram account, I am sort of like starting to see that there's a community out there that I can connect with. And it was kind of easy for me to find you. And I was like, wow, there's somebody like this, you know, (laughs) it was such a relief. And then I could easily just DM you. And if you wanted to respond, you could. And thankfully you did. But just also that willingness to have that conversation with somebody who you don't know and building that relationship, like you said. And I just want to say, I really appreciate you kind of putting the time, effort and thought into Brown Girl Green. And I'm sure it's helping a lot of people. So one of the things that you talked about was sort of some of the pains that you've experienced and putting your vulnerabilities out there. I see that kind of expressed in your environmental activism. And so how have you been able to convert some of that energy and that feeling into your work, particularly through Brown Girl Green, which is a podcast, but you're also on Instagram and have quite a following there too. Yeah, I feel like it's been like an evolving thing. I think it started off as like a podcast because I was just like, oh, this is like a really easy way to like create content to start talking about these things that frustrate me. Mm. Then it evolved into like me just like meeting interesting people like along the way, like I've had different like creatives, especially in the Bay Area, like people that I didn't even like know, but we like connected on like online meeting platforms like Craigslist or like there's this (laughs) app called Shaper. And I was just asking them, I'm like, hey, this is my vision for what I'm trying to create. Do you want to just like help contribute some part to that? And that's basically been what Brown Girl Green has been for two years. has been like random people who just like, feel very invested and maybe they they collaborate with me for maybe like an hour or like for months Mm -hmm. for years and I think that like this project is not just me there's like so many people behind it and then like I'm the person that like has like the what's it called the moxie to be the bridge between all of those different things Mm. and to be like a public face I think that's the hard part that people get wrong a lot of the time there's usually like these figures or there's this idea that you have to place like a heroism on like a certain like figure or a person. And then you forget that they have like all these people that contributed to make it happen. And I think that like, that's something that I think a lot of people don't know about, like, at least my story or like other people's stories that are like creating media. 
is that like, usually you have a whole team, you have people that contribute, you have people that help you. And I think for me, I channeled that energy of feeling divided and isolated into being like, well, who can I find who's on my team and can contribute to this? Mm-hmm. And that's basically been what I've figured out over the past two years. And it's been a labor of love and just being very awkward and uncomfortable and just being like, you know what? This is what I need. <laughs> and I'm going to ask for it, even though yeah. I'm nervous. And I think the difference between like me pushing through and making things happen as much as I have the past years has been like me getting over my own ego and just being like, you know what? Like, you can't do this alone. Like, yeah. the kinds of shifts and ideological shifts you're trying to create and produce, you have to like have people you're collaborating with. And it's more fun to do it that way. Doing it all by yourself is like really stressful and isolating. And that's kind of how it felt when I first started things off. And then once I started finding people, I'm like, oh, this is so much better. Cause like these people don't want to be like the face of like brown girl green, right. but they want to like help it. And then it makes me feel like, oh, I'm not alone. And there's like hella people supporting me. And that just feels so awesome. Right. And it's also kind of the opposite of what you were trying to do. If you're going to isolate yourself through this process, <laughs> you're not achieving kind of the movement. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But so. at the same time, you're so right. It's so hard to kind of see how to put yourself out there, put aside your ego, put aside your fears, your insecurities and connecting with people. But I think once you do it, as you found, it just doesn't matter anymore. And people just want to help if they can. Mm-hmm. And I think there's really a beauty in that type of experience where we just doubt ourselves in terms of will people even care do people even want to like hear my voice (laughs) (laughs) my voice oh my gosh my voice yes Uh, so just a lot of things to get over and once you have you're just like oh that wasn't as bad as I thought it was in fact it's nothing (laughs) yeah Yes, exactly. So one of the things that you've mentioned a couple of times is your pains of being an environmentalist of color. Do you mind sharing some of that with us? And I'm sure <laughs> yeah. we can be like, oh, yeah, yeah. I totally know that. <laughs> I would say like one of the biggest pains was just like not having like, there's just a lot of like ableism in the environmental movement. I don't know how else to put it. In a lot of organizing spaces, just a lot of like, you need to keep going. Even if you're burnt out, like this is the movement. Like if you give up, then like you're lazy or you don't really care Mm. or like you didn't give it your all. And I still feel those lingering pain sometimes where I've had people tell me that what I do with Brown Girl Green is not real activism. That's happened. Like I've been with like people that do like grassroots, like on the ground, like marches and, and that stuff is so important. That's, really important. That requires a lot of work. And guess what? I've been on that end too. I've planned that stuff. I've planned the rallies. I've been in person, like whatever. If you need the stamp of approval that I'm a real activist, whatever. Whatever that means. Yeah. That means. But it's like one of those things where like for a long time, I just kept feeling like, oh, if I'm not like storming a building or protesting or like covering myself with like blood and protesting against like, yeah. you know, all these all these things, it just, and, and you know, most of the people that were doing that stuff are like white people 
because they're not afraid of like, their parents aren't going to like scream at them if they get arrested or like, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it was just one of these difficult things where I just kept feeling like a sellout. Like kept feeling like, oh, what I'm doing is like not real activism or like, I don't really, I'm not really down for the cause. And I think that especially when I was in college, when I was doing those like demonstrations, sit-ins, teach-ins, all this stuff, I really exerted myself. I was skipping class. I was like going to like different trainings. Like I was so burnt out. And then when I actually talked to like people in the environmental group that I was in about it, they just like, I don't even know. Like it was just such a disregard of like my mental health. They're just like, well, like they just didn't understand what burnout was. They're like, well, you know, like this is the work that needs to get done. So like you need to figure it out and like get back to it. And I was just like, what? Wow. And it was just like one of those things where that just kept feeling like, oh, if I'm not participating in this type of activism that like doesn't even have people that like look like me or like feels connected to like the work that I do, then like I'm like, well, then what's my purpose in working on environmental stuff? I feel like that was a big pain. And I think like that continues to be a pain. Even having my platform is one of those things where I know people probably that have done grassroots activism, like on the ground, probably have criticized me or probably don't think that I know what I'm talking about. And I think like, yes, there are some things that like I can admit, like I don't have the same tools as someone who's a seasoned activist that's been doing this for like 20, 30 years. Like I haven't, done all of the frontline organizing relationship building that I would like to. Mm -hmm. And I admit that I'm not going to pretend like I have that experience when I don't have that yet. And I think that like, if anything, Brown Girl Green and like having my platform has allowed me to build some of those relationships with people who are on the front lines, especially people in the Philippines. And I think that like, I'm building that skill and I don't have that yet. And my platform doesn't reflect me being this like big old like, I have all the activist networks figured out and I'm like really like in that position of authority to be like, I'm an activist, but it's like one of those things where I just don't think that's what this is all about, you know? Yeah. And I think that like, that's a big pain that I face in the environmental movement is that there's so much division even in the activist organizing world yeah. about like how that should be done yeah. or what that should look like or who you should be organizing. And for me, I just kind of was like, I'm breaking up away from that. And I want to operate out of a space from of joy. And I learned that from Adrian Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism. Mm. Is that like our greatest power is operating out of like a space of like joy and abundance for the, the way we show up in, in the work that we do in the movement. And that's when I was like, yeah, I just want to operate from like what really feels like good and powerful for me. Because I know that's how I'm going to make the biggest impact yeah. with my activism. And my activism doesn't look like what, quote unquote, it should be, then like, well, I'm sorry. (laughs) But I'm not sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, not sorry, because obviously I am like making an impact somehow, some way on people's lives in a tangible day-to-day basis where they are like learning things and building skills to be thinking about these things. So yeah, I'd say that's one of the biggest pains that Mm. I continue to like from when it comes to the space. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know it took a lot for you to to do so. And I would say, don't let yourself be bullied by some of this rubbish. <laughs> when you were talking about feeling like a sellout because you weren't being this traditional activist, it kind of reminded me of when I was in college and I would see some of my friends 
going out and protesting. And especially we had a group of friends who were protesting the Immokalee workers at that time. And it was a lot of work that they put into it. And a part of me was like, uh, do I want to do that? And then, I mean, because I came to the U.S. on a student visa, I was like, well, I don't want to do that because if I get arrested, I can get deported and I don't want to lose my opportunity for an education in something that I love. So, I mean, luckily, at least the group of friends that was involved in that initiative didn't pressure me, but I feel like there was some sort of unseen, untalked about pressure of, yeah, you're a seller, you're not a true environmentalist if you don't like take to the streets and blah, blah, blah. And it was really hard for me to be like, man, I haven't done that. And quite frankly, I don't want to do it. It's not me. And it's not that I don't see value in it. But for me, I was like, I'm going to make change through policy and education. And that's my form of activism, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what you've experienced as well and still grappling with. But I feel like, you know, as you were explaining it, I was like, wow, that is kind of feeling like being bullied <laughs> in, in a way. Yeah, I mean, it kind of is. It is one of those things where it's like, well, I think we're all trying to figure this stuff out. So it's like, as long as like people are contributing the way they're contributing, like, why are you going to poop on their methodology? Totally. <laughs> and maybe, I'm like, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't work. And it's like, maybe that's not your, in the activist world, we call it the theory of change. Yeah. And just because one person, has a different theory of change than you, you know, we're all trying to work towards similar goals. And yes, ideally, like we should be collaborating and interweaving together, but sometimes that doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that makes things. And the thing is like, yes, at the end of the day, we have to move together. And yes, that's going to be a slower process. But I think that like, there needs to be like, some sort of like culture shift when it comes to that stuff on like how we're addressing each other and respecting the ways we all show up in a space and like admiring that right rather than like admonishing it so yeah again it's just the opposite of how this entire movement was kind of came to being it was all about like peace love harmony and Mm -hmm. respect for each other and for nature and now it's just turned into like this huge ego fest which is is quite unfortunate But we know that you're making some sort of impact and you're doing that through Brown Girl Green. You're connecting people, you're helping amplify those voices that need to be heard in the environmental space. And it's resonating with more than 7,500 people and plus on through your Instagram page. So could you tell us what's your strategy or intent of how you engage with people on Instagram? I mean, a lot of it's been asking people what they want to see or learn about. I think that that's like really like formed how I've been like, because like I was doing really like broad level, like we need to solve the climate crisis because it's caused by these big economic forces. Like I was going like really big picture Mm. at the beginning. And I think a lot of people and, and especially big picture when it came to the issue around diversity and inclusion in the environmental movement. And people are like, what are you talking about? Right. And I think like over time, I've learned like, no, you really have to break it up into like the really simple points that are going to really like engage people and like help them learn a topic and to just not be like someone who's shouting ideologies into a void, but actually like, let me give people steps and hold their hand to like figure out how I can engage with the content. And I think that that's been a really big thing. Also, like I said, building relationships with people 
through the tool, like through the platform. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of like how Brown Girl Green's been boosted is because of my collaborations with other people. So like just like meeting people who like felt passionate about similar things and like that continues to be why my platform continues to grow is because like due to like the things that I've done, I've been able to just like build relationships offline that have truly like benefited the ways I'm like thinking about how I'm connecting with like other activists and people in the space. And we're like actually creating real life like webinars or presentations together to teach people and do skill shares like And I think that that's one of the biggest ways the platform has continued to like grow has been just having people who reach out to me and utilize it as a way to ask me questions. I shape my content. I put content out again, according to like the things people want and then they engage with it. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) No, that makes sense. And I especially like your collaborations on Instagram Live when you're talking to other experts and also Mm, most recently mm -hmm. in the collaboration that you had with queer brown vegan Isaiah Hernandez on IBS and the choice of being vegan and whether you can do that and it's a different situation for everyone but reading some of those comments I already saw some really snarky comments about like (laughs) you're not trying hard enough if you're not getting past the IBS you know and uh, it's just like where is the empathy oh my god it was really sad to see that but eye-opening at the same time I was like the girl just said she has trouble being a full vegan because of biological (laughs) reasons like I mean I was not surprised (laughs) at all like I see that all the time in the environmental space you don't know how many times people have told me why do you only talk about people of color like that's racist I'm like what oh yeah you don't even know how many like People have, especially white women specifically, have DM'd me and are like, you know, I feel like your content's really like inaccessible to like people that aren't people of color. And I just think it's hilarious because I'm mixed race. So like I'm half Jewish. So I like tell them like, well, I think you're wrong because like I actually am mixed race. Yeah. And (laughs) I'm like, so by default, like I am including you in it because I like exist as a person and I'm like that's not how race works and I was just like I was so annoyed but that there's been a lot of that where people are like you can't environmental racism that's not a thing like just focus on talking about sustainability or like climate change and I'm like this is exactly the problem right or that IBS pose like oh well that sucks that you have a chronic illness but the planet matters more than your chronic illness. Like what? <laughs> right. That's totally how it came off. I was like, oh, okay. I guess she should just, I don't know, like eat herself to death. I don't know. Or sometimes I just don't understand where, where people come from. And, uh, but you know, people are people. <laughs> people are people. Yeah. Oh gosh. But yeah, I'm sorry that you also have to receive such comments of like, I feel like this information is not accessible to me. And quite honestly, I struggle with it. And it just really, I do because, you know, here we are creating a platform for ourselves and Mm -hmm. we feel like we should be heard. And because we haven't for centuries. And so now either you want to be an ally and be a part of the process or just exclude yourself, but nobody's saying you can't be a part of it, you know? Mm. But the fact that everything else in this world has been for you, why can't we have a little 
something for us in a sense. And I really struggle with that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like this whole like, we shouldn't be so focused on identity politics. I'm like, our whole world is built on identity politics. Right. And I think that there's a lot of just people who are like, well, why do we have to focus on race? It's like, because it's embedded in all of the institutions and infrastructure and ways we live our lives. So I'm like, to act like we live in a colorblind postmodern society where race doesn't exist is just like absurd to me. And I think that's like why I like made my platform specifically like brown girl green. Cause I'm like, for me, it is my own statement to be like, I'm not going to have you like erase that part of me because of your own like sensitivity to me existing in right. this space. I love that sensitivity to me existing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. Yes. That's a great way of putting it. So, you know, you've had a a non-traditional kind of trajectory so far in the environmental space. And I think that you've been like fortunate enough to kind of explore your identity and how that's impacted by the environmental movement and your perspectives. And so what advice would you give to other people who are looking to make a positive impact in environmental sustainability? Yeah. I would say like figure out who like your community is and like how you can communicate to them. I think everyone has an important story to share and like we need as many storytellers as possible right now to be able to engage people because maybe you come from a completely different community than the one that I come from and you're able to communicate to your people in a much different way than I could. Um, That's actually going to be able to like connect with their hearts and minds to like take action. And I think that one of the most important things is like honing in on what your story is. So like figuring out what are the environmental issues impacting my community? Why would my community care about this? And like, what is my story that I want to share about that issue? And I think that a lot of people could start there, just like start doing like exercises to like practice, like owning your story about like, what would you want your blog or your media platform to be talking about related to spreading environmental advocacy and like figure out who in your community are like the movers and shakers that like would support you pushing your story forward and like start making like a map of like those people and like start reaching out to them and let them know like hey this is a really big issue no one's talking about it can we partner up and like start making posts together and like start making content and start like making infographics and spreading the word and like pushing petitions and that's kind of like how things start moving as you focusing on a very like location specific issue area and then like spreading it out, I think is my biggest recommendation. Lovely. I think that's probably one of the first places you should start is figure out what your story is. And that's, I think, the hardest, but the most fundamental part of finding your way through this space, especially in environmental activism, where, like you said, you'll get people who are questioning you and who are sort of bullying you. And just knowing your story from the start is really what helps you kind of anchor yourself when you get such criticism. It's a good reminder of like, okay, this is my story and this is true to who I am. And I'm hearing what this person is saying and I'll take their feedback if necessary. That's great advice. So we've come to the part of our conversation, which I call the lightning round. And it's a series of four questions. Mm -hmm. And you answer the first thing that comes to your mind. 
Okay. So if you're ready, we'll start with the first question. Go ahead. All right. So what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Oh, honestly, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That movie is like unreal. It just made me realize like how important human emotion and affection is and how like you can somehow, some way, if you're really talented, use media to demonstrate that. Mm. I haven't heard of that movie, but... Oh. oh, it's so good. Is it on Netflix? No, it's on Hulu. Okay. It's made by the same I made Parasite. Oh. It's like unreal. Very, very good. Okay. okay. I'll put that on my list of things to watch this weekend. <laughs> What's yes. a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I would say having someone in my friend group hold me accountable mm. to the task that I need to get done. Having an accountability partner. That's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Oh, I think my mom always uses this quote, like, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Mm. I love that advice. I mean, I know it's a quote from some other famous old lady, but <laughs> my mom always uses it and is always, yeah, it's always grounded me a lot. That's a good one. It sounds like something Maya Angelou would say, but I don't know if she did say that. <laughs> That's very deep. What is your superpower? Oh, I would say my superpower is just like connecting with people regardless of like race, religion, political ideology, age. I feel like I'm very able to be comfortable talking to like any person. Mm, that's good. And it is truly a superpower because many of us are tend to be afraid and question ourselves a lot when we have to reach out to other people. So yeah. <laughs> Have you ever struggled with that? And if so, what's your advice on getting over it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've struggled with it when it's like someone who I think is like super cool or I'm like, oh, they're too cool for me. I think the, I mean, and then I get really shy. I feel like the only way I've been able to get over it is like maybe going in the bathroom, taking a few deep breaths, having a friend who's like less intimidated by the person to introduce me. Yeah. Or third, I would say just like, sucking it up and even if it's like a total mess and like maybe the interaction sucks like at least you put yourself out there yeah and you've lived another day to, to tell the tale of trying to put yourself out there but yeah I mean it can be scary and it can be intimidating and I know that like even myself I can be really socially awkward when it's especially someone who I'm like I admire you so much but at the end of the day like people are people yeah and it's about like remembering that and I, I need to take my own advice. That's true. Yeah, people are people, like we said. I think for me, what I try to tell myself is, what do you lose by not talking mm. to this person and reaching out to them? Mm -hmm. And also just the opposite of that is, what do you have to lose? So yeah, that's really good superpower. All right, so yeah. we have to put our conversation to a pause here. And <laughs> I have to ask you how people can follow you on your journey. Yeah, so you all can subscribe to the Brown Girl Green podcast. You can subscribe to Brown Girl Green on YouTube. And you can check out browngirlgreen.org and follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Brown Girl Green. Okay, great. And is there anything else you would like to add? I just want to say that... For those of you who are struggling right now and figuring out how to navigate your path, that you're not alone and that you just need to focus on taking care of yourself first and foremost, even when that feels impossible to do. Mm -hmm. 
That's good. Well, thank you for those uplifting words. <laughs> we need it <laughs> every you. day. Yes. So yeah, definitely go follow Brown Girl Green on Instagram, on YouTube. And it's just a lot of great positive vibes that I think a lot of us environmentalists, whether we're formally trained or not, just want to save the world. We can definitely get that from your platform. So thank you for that. Thank you. This was so fun. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.